Hi guys, Paul from the Innovation Community here. Today I'm with Anthony Garetto, who is the Senior Director of Digital Transformation at Leica Microsystems. So he's a digital leader by trade and Anthony drives the overall business transformation effort for Leica. So great to have you with us. Thanks, Paul. It's great to be here. Just to start with, tell us a bit more about yourself in a few words. Sure, sure. No problem. Um, I think maybe on the personal side, so I, I was born in the U.S. I grew up American. I've um, been living and working out of Germany for the last eight years, so that's been uh, uh, quite an interesting experience for us. Um, have two little kids, also both born in Germany, um, and uh, my wife is American as well. And I've been working in different industries, manufacturing, semiconductor industry, life sciences and medical, so I have a pretty, pretty good background, I think, across different industries. For sure. And where did your career working in digital start? Um, I, I think, you know, I, I grew up kind of learning science and engineering, right? So I think, Paul, data has always played some type of role, right, in, in whatever you're trying to prove, whether that's scientifically or engineering-wise. But I think specifically as we're talking about data here, um, I'd say about 10 years ago it started probably. I was, I was working in the semiconductor industry and we were building massive systems for semiconductor manufacturers. So these are typically used for quality control and they're basically microscopes that look at really small features to check, are those semiconductor features gonna work for my memory device or my processor, right? Um, now the customers, they're paying tens of millions of dollars for these systems. This isn't a typical microscope. These things are you know, seven by five meters, massive things sitting in rooms. And what we were doing is we were really focused on the optics and saying, we want to provide customers the best image so they can look at those images and say, yeah, my product is good. I can deliver it to Apple, for instance, or my product is not good, right? And I kind of thought there's got to be a better way, right? They're, they're paying tens of millions and we're delivering images when all the customers, all they really wanted was a pass or a fail, a green light or a red light, right? Yeah, that's good enough for Apple or no, that's not. Um, so that was kind of really when it started, and we, we started and set our focus on developing uh, a software using machine learning technologies that basically could, instead of providing these images, provide that answer and that insight, right? And I think that for me was kind of a mindset change, both in my career and also for the company saying, instead of always having our focus on make the best image, we said, let's just use the data and leverage the data actually to give the answer that the customer wants. That's a fantastic story. And how has that role really evolved over time? Um, I think for my, for, my, for my personal career, ever since then, you know, that was about 10 years ago, Paul, ever since then, I've been really focused on not only data, but digital technologies and digital approaches in general. Um, of course, they all run off data, right? Data is like the lifeblood of that. But I think, I think that really changed the focus. And I've always since then been really focused on optimizing, using software, using data to really optimize processes and simplify things. And, and so, so that was a big changing point for, for me in my career, I think. So tell us what you're up to in the current role. I currently work at, as you mentioned, Leica Microsystems. Um, so we don't make cameras. I know the, the Leica name is the most famous for making the cameras. And I also, Paul, can't get you a discount on a Leica camera. So um, unfortunately, a different company. But what we do, we serve three distinct markets. Um, the first one, we call it applied. And this is essentially food sciences and, again, industry. So we do quality control. So anytime that you're feeding your family healthy, high-quality food, that has gone through a rigorous quality control process using our optical systems, our microscopes. 
Um, also, anytime you drive a car or you any type of steel industries, all automotive, all of these industries use our systems for quality control to check and make sure that things are safe and up to up to, to par, right? So that's industrial. Um, the second industry we serve is medical. And this one I think is, is a really important one. We provide big surgical microscopes for surgeons to do microsurgery. So this could be uh, eye surgery. This could be something to, having to do with dental all the way up to high-end neurosurgery where the surgeon is really going in there and removing some type of tumor, right? So really important um, systems in this, in this field. And our biggest market and, and biggest focus, Paul, is the life sciences, specifically life science research. So we also provide really high-end technologies and solutions for our customers to research things. Specifically, they're usually looking for a cure for something. So this could be a cure for cancer or some children's disease. Most recently, a lot of researchers are actually looking, of course, at COVID-19, right? So, so a lot of our systems are being used in modern-day research to look at, okay, um, to, to explore and understand this COVID-19 situation a little more. So that was generally the markets we serve. And my role specifically, probably unlike a lot of the people, I think, Paul, you've talked to, when we speak of digital transformation, we're really product and market focused. So it's a lot less having to do with the IT landscape or improving our business analytics and processes for data-driven um, decision-making or data democracy. It's really focused on enhancing our products with digital technologies, our, our optical and mechanical systems, so that they can differentiate and provide better solutions. And then also, of course, there's lots of spin-off opportunities for additional revenue streams, additional options and, and, and solutions that we can offer to our customers that are digital-based and digital-focused and not so much really a traditional hardware system. A really diverse portfolio that you, you guys are working with there. What really interests you about working in these different industries with these different products and, and, and linking that with data? Oh, that's, that's good. I, I would say, I mean, it's, it's two things. Um, so the interest in the general markets, I explained a little bit what that means to me. I think all of these link to our lives, right? So I find a lot of motivation in that. Like I said, the, the quality control, right? Anytime that we're, we're eating food or that you get in your car and drive away and your wife has peace of mind and doesn't worry, even though we don't think about it, this peace of mind is somehow contributed by this quality control stuff, right? So I, I kind of think and don't think about that every day. Um, the medical industry, I'm, I'm sure we've all had people that have undergone some surgery, right? I mean, in my own family, I have people that are, that are diabetics and have undergone simple eye surgeries, right? But it's always reassuring to know, hey, we're providing solutions that can provide hopefully the best outcome and then make those loved ones that they're having these surgeries for us recover in the fastest amount of time. Um, and then I think life science research, this is also a clear one for me, just the motivation that, hey, we could help drive some breakthrough insight or some discovery um, that leads to, to, to a cure for a disease and in turn saves lives. This is super motivating for us, I think. Um, the data, the data aspect, yeah, I mean, I, mean I, I really love it, like I said, because I think, I think we're generating so much data in all of these industries that it's impossible for us as humans to find these patterns. And I think that's where really a lot of analytics and AI things that complement this data can help extract insight and information and really give us a leg up in all of these um, advanced areas. Absolutely. So for you personally, what would you describe as some of the major successes you've achieved over your career? Major successes, well, I mean, there's been, of course, combinations of a lot of failures and some successes, right? That's how we learn, I think. Um, 
you know, on the technical side, Paul, I started in physics and engineering, so I definitely have not made any great technical contribution contributions to the field of, of data or analytics, right? That, that wasn't even around that much when I was in school. Um, I'd say also, you know, some of those things like this, this, the software package for the semiconductor industry I was talking about, giving this pass-fail, great personal successes there, but I really find my role being more of a leader in here, right? I, I'm not by trade a data scientist. I'm not um, a super technical guy in that aspect. So I kind of take care of both the business side and the expectation management for, for management. So I think for me, the greatest success for me is when I can leave a company, what's, what's the legacy I left behind? It's kind of like, does that company still have uh, an appreciation and understanding for, for data and that software and digital products have a value, for instance, right? And they're not just, hey, let's develop some cool thing using AI or, or managing data and let's throw it as an extra feature to sell this hardware, right? Do they really understand there's a value there that, that, customers, that customers want? I, I think that's an important part for me. And you mentioned that there's been a lot of mistakes along the way. What do you think was the biggest mistake you made during your career? The biggest one, um, I, I think, you know, probably at the beginning, I had a really um, a huge gap or, or a lack of understanding for how difficult the change management aspect of all of this stuff is, right? I've, uh, Paul, I'm so, but the companies I've worked for, they're both traditional, you know, kind of German manufacturing companies histories 150 years old or older, right? So these are not like born native companies that are, that are naturally software manufacturers um, and things like this. So I, I think the change management aspect, I really overlooked, you know, when, when I first, when we first had the idea for this, these software packages, right? I thought, oh, look, we, we can really quantify and write down what are the benefits? Everyone will see it. Everyone will understand and jump on board, jump on the boat, right? That we can spin off a digital business and, and, and sell stuff. And that was incredibly not the case. I, I greatly underestimated the mindset change and the effort you have to put forth to, to drive a, something like that. Brilliant. So you mentioned that a lot of the work you do is, is working with people. How would you describe your leadership style, especially when engaging and communicating with your your team members um yeah i i definitely have kind of like a like a a proactive coaching and positive leadership style i think so i'm kind of like a first year millennium actually technically about how i was born but i think the benefit that gives me i can kind of bridge the gap so that the the general management population who's typically a little bit older than me i can still communicate with Yet I'm also somewhat sort of in touch with a lot of the younger people that we bring into the organization who are typically these roles like data scientists, right? Like architects and things like that. So communication wise, that, that gives me a pretty good feeling. Um, and within the team, we really run the team fully transparent and we have kind of a, a slogan. Um, and the slogan is democracy when possible, decision when necessary. So that means Again, operating with full transparency, we always try to bring big decisions into the team. So, so myself and my, my immediate team leaders, um, and, and they're encouraged really to, to hash it out. I mean, you, you fight like a dog and you argue over your point. If you think that you have the right way to go, then you should really promote that, right? And we have intensive discussions. But the expectation within the team is then once we've settled on the direction that we go, everyone should follow that as if it was their own idea, right? And I think that leads to really a lot of trust within the team and a lot of um, um, drive to, to, to fulfill that decision once it's made, actually. 
Um, and the second part of that, of course, decision when necessary, that's not always possible, right? And in those tough cases, then I'm the one who has to make the decision because basically I'm the one that's held accountable from, uh, from the management point of view. Mm. And can you tell us about a time that you affected change in a major organization and some of the challenges that came with that? Yeah, I think, again, it's, it's the change management aspect, I have to say, uh, Paul. So both organizations, really traditional, um, like I said, that I've had experience in, which has been fantastic, learned the hardware side starting out with, but really this mindset change of that there's a value in software. I think a lot of manufacturing companies, you know, greater than 90% of, of the actual economy in the world is from these traditional companies, right? So I think the, the, the point there is that they're really focused on selling hardware and using software as a complement as features, right? And changing this mindset and having people say, okay, software has a value and can be sold is, is a huge thing. Um, I, I have one example, I mean, just a generic one. So some of these massive systems we're talking about, right? We needed to double the, the throughput of one of them for, for a customer. So looking at this, you know, we looked at it, okay, from the hardware point of view, we can spend three, four million on the hardware itself to double the throughput of that system. And then we sell that upgrade for, you know, cost plus maybe eight, 10 million to the customer. On the other hand, we actually had a software package that we could basically implement and get the same throughput almost for a cost of about 50,000 uh, extra development effort. But it was nearly impossible to convince the organization that you could actually sell that for the same price. So it's, it's again, looking at hardware has a value, software maybe doesn't. Instead of looking at guys, the end result, the value to the customer is the same in both cases. So the value that they would be willing to pay should also be the same in both cases. And how are you currently leveraging technology to your advantage? And what effects do you think this will have on the landscape in the future? So specifically within my group, we're looking at, of course, I mean, the largest portion of my group is just working with pure data, meaning, meaning data management, data handling. So some of these systems that we're talking about, these next generation systems for life science research, one experiment can can run a few days and this can generate hundreds of terabytes, even theoretically up to a terabyte within a week of a uh, petabyte within a week of data. So this is massive amounts of data. So looking a lot at, you know, how do you, how do you manage that? How do you compress, transfer, make that data accessible to people so that then they can do something with that afterwards? The second aspect of that is employing, I'm just going to use the word AI, the term AI as a, as a more generic buzzword. Um, we're specifically looking at a lot of convolutional neural networks because those are really good for image processing, of course, and we're an imaging company. But we're employing AI a lot to try to extract insights. So again, similar, similar to the other example that I gave in the semiconductor industry, you know, during an experiment, a life science researcher can produce hundreds, thousands of images. There could be 20, 30 cells in each of these images, right? And what they really want to know is, how many cells are there? What type of cells are there? How many are alive? How many are dead? They want to track these things. And that's something that, of course, from a, from a um, single person analyzing this point of view, that's not really feasible to do or possible, right? You need years to do this. But by leveraging the data and using AI on top of that, we can extract, count the cells, we can classify the cells, we can track the cells, we can determine if they're alive and dead, right? So we're putting a lot of effort into, into those type of things, just generally generating insight so that our life science researchers, partners can kind of connect the dots for the experiments that they're doing and hopefully speed up um, the research that, that they're doing. 
And where do you see the biggest opportunity for improvement within the organization right now? I guess if Paul, if you asked me about the organization itself, I would think that it's, you know, maybe turning some of that focus internally. As I said, we are a traditional organization. We definitely could benefit from more business analytics, right? We could definitely benefit from making our decisions more data-driven based. Um, but I think for the current effort that we're doing, it really lies in properly employing these artificial intelligence technologies and really deploying them in the right way, right? Making them accessible to all of the customers that use them, whether this is a, a really high-end facility that we have, or if I consider the industrial market, you know, we have some, some, some more value-based customers, right, that have much, much cheaper systems, and they don't want to have a big computer crunching numbers next to it, right? So you have to look at cloud solutions here. So I think this balance is, is something that we're, we're struggling with and, and also a, a challenge that we're working on now. And you touched on it briefly earlier, but what are your thoughts on the impacts of COVID-19 right now? Uh, COVID-19, that's, uh, I think everyone would say it's, it's fundamentally changed uh, our lives, right? <laughs> I think um, some people, it's had a much bigger impact than they thought additionally. I mean, everything I would say from the obvious, which is, of course, sporting events being canceled, right? Uh, my, my kids were out of kindergarten and in school and sitting at home for, for months going stir crazy, right? Um, working at home. I mean, now a lot of us are working from home. I think using things like we're using now, Zoom, Skype, these type of things is, is commonplace now. So it's really fundamentally impacted that. There's been also, I would say, even some more fundamental things, especially specifically in the U.S. It, it almost kind of led into politics, right? It was kind of like, if you don't wear a mask, you're a Republican Trump supporter. If you wear a mask, you're kind of more of a liberal, um, you know. So it, it, it's really had impacts on all the aspects that we have uh, um, of our lives. I think from the business scene, I mean, you see a lot of specifically our medical industry, right? This was very difficult because the hospitals during this period essentially shut their doors to vendors, right? So it had a negative impact on our business, but there's other companies like a lot of these med tech companies, right? Um, that really increased their business and, and grew because of this, because people were trying to use more digital solutions to reach out to customers, to interact with customers and to use the data um, instead of face-to-face -face discussions. And it looks like you, you're back in the office right now, unless you have a super fancy yeah. home office, but uh, <laughs> is, is that something that's been, I imagine that's been phased in. How, how did you find working from home? What was that experience like for you? Um, that was, that was a great point for us. So, so like as an organization, we were really, as I said, a traditional organization, you know, the traditional German one, the guys come in, they clock in, they work all day, they clock out, they go home. A lot of the people, even some of our software developers didn't have laptops to take home. Right. So when it first hit, we, we scrambled, I, I spent a couple of weeks as part of the leadership team trying to make sure everybody had laptops, that the VPN capacity, VPN capacity would work. Um, how can people remote log into the hardware systems when they're not here, right, to do testing and things? So that, that was challenging, but what we really saw was, um, in some cases, productivity increases, in some cases, productivity decreases, right? So for me personally, it was okay, although, as I said, I, I had my children at home, so of course, it kind of split my working hours between really early in the morning and then really late at night, right? Working instead of a, a normal day shift so that I could help accommodate with the kids some. 
but we had saw some kids, you know, a lot of the guys in my, in my AI team, my data scientists, these are younger guys, no kids at all. So they basically sat at home, put on their headphones and just coded away. And the productivity, the, the velocity in our agile teams increased. So this was a pretty interesting mix. I think that we had there. And, um, now our, our management is actually looking at these things and saying, okay, how can we find a good balance between the homework and the future and also being on site? We're, we're not really a company that can say, hey, everybody work from home because of course we create, we manufacture hardware things, right? The, the operations team has to be here. The development team that's working on the optics and the stages, they have to also be in-house, right? So it's kind of now trying to find the right balance here, but um, yeah, it, it was a very disruptive uh, uh, time for us, I think. With that in mind, you've got kids. What's your top working from home tip? Oh, my top working from home tip. You know, there's there's a bunch of them, Paul, and I, I think none of the, none of them are are really like uh, groundbreaking, right? They're things that have been said again. One thing I really noticed is that my I did at some level become more productive in areas, but my my work life balance completely crashed, right? Because you're I mean your office is like ten steps away, so it's basically oh okay the kids are watching a show, I'm going to run down and do some work or, you know, they're taking a nap. I'm going to go do some work. Um, it's in the evening. Oh, I saw an email come in. I'm going to run down and answer it or schedule this meeting. So I think really a clear cut. What I, what I started doing after a week or so is really having a routine where it was, and I think you've heard this from, from other people on your show. Um, basically you get up in the morning, you dress like you're going to work, right? You take a shower, you have your routine, you sit in the office and then by the time your day is done, you, I really would go and actually change into like sports clothes or something a little bit more relaxing. Right. And that for me helps to, uh, to, to kind of break this thing up. But, um, I saw that also in my team, a lot of people really struggle with the work life balance and, and it can be really stressful. I think when the kids are there the, the whole day. <laughs> Absolutely. What does your routine look like? My general routine. Exactly. Okay. Um, so I'm actually pretty disciplined. I'm, um, with, with my normal routine, uh, and I'm kind of have this agile mindset, but I think that's one thing people don't realize about, you know, running agile scrum methodologies. It's actually very disciplined. It doesn't just mean things are crazy and you can change all the time. Right. It, it works because it's a very disciplined process. And I actually kind of run my, my, my life like that. So I get up really early. I get up about 5 a.m. Um, I typically kind of look at my agenda for the day so I know what's going on, you know, in terms of how my day is. And then I start doing some, some, some sports. So I do some exercise or things in the morning. And why I first look at my, my agenda, I learned this little trick from one boss. I actually, while I'm working out, I kind of think about those meetings I'm going to have. If there's, is there something conflictual and how would I handle that, right? Is there someone I need to convince? How would I handle that? So sort of prep myself for the day. Um, then I, I, I take a shower. Actually, I'm, I'm into cold showers now because this is a, like a sort of a Nordic thing that I think I, I learned is should be good for your health. I don't know. Maybe it's a gimmick. Um, and then I have a little time with the kids. I'm typically in the office by around seven or so. Days are also pretty structured. We have pretty good regular meetings, stand-ups and things. Um, and then, yeah, the evenings are always crazy with things with the kids, sports, whatever my wife's doing. But the one the one routine I do keep in the evening, Paul, I always, every single night, read to my kids. So, so that's my favorite time of the day. I get to put my kids down in bed. I get to read a book. I, I don't bring my cell phone. I don't bring my laptop, anything. I completely ignore, even if my boss calls or whatever. But that's really my, my, my hour of the day to really spend with my kids to read and, and, and to interact with them. Um, yeah, so, so fairly, fairly disciplined, I think. Yeah, I agree, especially because it is easy to kind of slip out of that routine 
with the working from home and the work-life balance. But and in any case, James Bond yeah. takes cold showers, according to Ian Fleming. So I think <laughs> okay. you're onto a winner there. What's the best piece of advice you ever received? Um, the best piece of advice, you know, something that sticks out in my mind. Um, this is also not nothing profound, Paul. I mean, but I remember when, when I was going through these really difficult times in my first role, as I said, greatly underestimating the, the mindset change and this change management that's needed. There were a couple roadblocks we hit where I was completely frustrated. And I think people, my colleagues started to notice, you know, Hey, he doesn't have that passion that burns anymore. He's not driving like a maniac to get this done. Right. Um, and there was one day I went home and I went to take my laptop out and a piece of paper, a note fell out of my bag and I picked it up. There was no name on it or anything. And it just said, never give up, keep on pushing. So again, nothing profound, but I think for anyone, for anyone in, you know, our type of industry, especially if you're doing a digital transformation for a, for a traditional company, the best piece of advice I guess I could give is, is just that don't, don't give up. I mean, it's, you know, sometimes I feel like I give the same presentation, the same talk. I see this, I say the same thing 500, a thousand times over and over. And only then when I get completely sick of saying it, finally do other people start to kind of pick up on it, I think. And, and you usually see that return on investment come a year, 18 months later in my experience. But um, yeah, don't give up is the only thing I can say. What are you curious about right now? One topic I'm very curious about is ethics, ethics in AI specifically. Um, this was brought to my attention by, by one of my team members, actually one of our most gifted data scientists, I think. And uh, we, we recently had a, a really interesting discussion um, about, about being torn between, you know, the use and employment of AI, which of course, as a technologist and as a scientist, you think this is fascinating. You want to drive this. You want to see what benefits can you bring with this. On the other hand, with some of these things, specifically, you know, um, um, deep learning and things, you have this kind of this black box uh, thing, right? Where, where you don't always know exactly what's going in or why you're getting the results that you get out of that. So you kind of have this duality. As a scientist, you want to know what's going on. You want to know, you want to know the facts behind it. You want to know how do I get to this result, right? How do I prove my hypothesis? We all, but on the other hand, when you're using these technologies, you don't always know that. So how do we know when to employ these, right? I mean, we don't want, um, again, if I talk about the life sciences, you know, if someone's studying and researching and trying to find a cure for a disease, you don't want to use some black box technique that all of a sudden they get a result that can't be explained, right? So I think I'm really curious about this balance. How do you handle ethics and AI generally? How do we set rules and, and, and how do we really make sure that we're employing it in the right way, but also that we're not just blindly using it across, across the board? And who is your favorite thought leader or author, whether that's in the AI data digital space or maybe even just the wider business space? Um, I would say, I mean, there's so many people now, you know, this thought leadership thing, there, there's so many that have good ideas and advice. I would say the one would probably be the late Clayton Christensen. I mean, he's, I think, you know, from the, uh, the innovators DNA, uh, the, the famous author there, he really had some, some great views on business and on innovation generally, I think. Um, maybe a little bit more general one that I like, who's somewhat controversial is Tony Robbins. A lot of people don't really like his, his approach, you know, it's a little bit kind of loud and aggressive, but 
I find he has some really great viewpoints, especially when it's in terms of success, you know, being hungry and really, really wanting something and being motivated that kind of goes hand in hand with, with being successful. So I find some of those concepts pretty, pretty interesting. And what is your favorite quote? Does it go back to the one you got in the piece of paper? Um, my favorite, yeah, maybe, maybe I would use a different one though, but so my favorite quote, uh, and this, this we actually use in my team, it's a quote from, um, from Theodore Roosevelt from, from one of the U S presidents. And it is, um, complaining without providing a solution is called whining. So I think, yeah, maybe, maybe this is also a little bit of an aggressive one, but why I like that is I really encourage my team, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of constant improvement. And that's also something part of our company. We're part of the Danaher business system. And this is a huge tenant of this overall company, right? Is constant improvement improvement. Um, I find it great because I think, you know, we, we see problems every day, but we shouldn't just take problems and always complain about it. Cause that, that kind of has a negative connotation and it brings people down. And I think my expectation is if you have a problem, you should come and at least have one solution, how it could be improved. Right. It doesn't have to be the best one. It doesn't have to be one we actually even employ. Right. But you should at least train your mind to say, here's a problem. Here's one way we could solve that. And then we can of course consider, does that get, get on our priority list or not? Right. Um, so yeah. I, I like that quote a lot. It's a good one too. What advice would you give for aspiring leaders in data? I think a lot of leaders are, have a somewhat different background as me. They, they have a real data background, right? So, so the data scientists, super brilliant technical guys. I have a couple in my team, just absolutely brilliant guys. However, that a lot of times comes with a trade-off. It's more difficult for them to communicate and to explain what we're doing, right? So I would say anybody who wants to go into the leadership side, especially of data and has a strong, great technical background, really focus on those soft skills also. So um, be able to, to communicate to people and don't always use, you know, the real, the, the deep data science jargon. When you communicate with normal people, use more normal terminology, right? Um, maybe have some analogies or some metaphors in your back pocket, right? To, to explain to people so they understand how does this AI algorithm work? How does data work? How is this being transferred, right? Just ways that you can communicate and get people. This will really help you convince people and help get buy-in, which in the long term that's really what's critical for your success. It's not just being a brilliant data scientist and having, you know, uh, uh, great patents and great ideas. It's really this ability to communicate and, and convince others in the organization that will eventually um, lead, lead to success. Great. That was Anthony Garetto, Senior Director of Digital Transformation at Leica Microsystems. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Paul. It was a pleasure.